so I have a good friend of mine who uh, was once a police officer in Washington, D.C. He is now a uh, pastor up in Oregon. Um, and when he was first stationed in Washington, he was stationed, um, one of his first assignments was a Sunday day shift. And a lot of people on the force know Sunday day shifts to be kind of like sleepy shifts. I mean, there's not, not normally a ton that's going on. It's kind of like, just kind of cruise around, make sure things are at peace, and you just kind of get through the day. Um, and so this was one of those days. And in Washington on this particular day, it was Father's Day. And this Father's Day was a really, really rainy day. I mean, it's like the, the sky had got its maximum potential for moisture, and it's just like gushing over. And so it was like really kind of, you really just want to go to sleep on a day like, uh, on a day like this. And so my friend was kind of in his cruiser and he's like, I'm just going to kind of cruise around and kind of have this sleepy Sunday to myself. Nothing big is going to happen. No big deal. And, um, then off in the distance, he sees a little, just like a little spot, right? A little spot moving and he can't like quite make it out. So he cruises over to it a little bit and he realizes and recognizes that it's two children. Um, couldn't be over the age of 14, um, and they're in their pajamas. It's pouring out, and one is leading the other. This, this sister is, is leading her brother, and um, he was just like, what is going on? So he gets out of the car, runs over to the kiddos, and he's like, hey, what are you guys doing? Like, it is raining out here right now, and they're like, we are going to our grandmother's house, and he was like, why are you walking in the rain? And they said, um, we had to get away from him. And he said, who? From our dad. We had to leave our brother behind. And he was like, why did you leave your brother behind? He was, he was too hurt. He couldn't come with us. And my friend's stomach just drops below the floor. And he just says, where, is, where are you guys at? Where is your brother? And they just start screaming over and over again, please don't take us back there. Please don't take us back there. Please don't take us back there. And my friend's refrain was, I just want to check on your brother. I just want to check on your brother. I just want to check on your brother. And they, he finally said to them, listen, I, I, won't, I will not make you go into, into the apartment. Just tell me where he, he is so that I can go check on him. They said, okay, so we're over here. So he drives over there and they're like, this is our apartment. He's like, okay, what's the number of your apartment? They tell him. And my friend gets out of the car to go into the apartment building. And at this point, rage has begun to rise from his belly into his heart because he's recognizing and remembering today is Father's Day. Today is Father's Day. Today is Father's Day. And he's just broken by this. And he's walking up to the apartment door. And as he's getting there, he he hears kind of someone like rustling around. And as you can imagine, you've heard someone who's really upset and angry, kind of have like a walking gait, you know, just kind of an angered movement. And he can hear that in the apartment. So he gets there and he knocks on the door and the father who's on the other side of the door walking around angrily assumes that it's his children back from wherever they were. And he just starts slinging profanities in their direction, just left and right, cutting them down, which makes my friend only angrier and angrier. And the father finally gets to the door and opens it. And instead of seeing his two children, sees a man in uniform and just disappears back into the apartment, just runs away as fast as he can. So my friend pursues him. And as he's pursuing, he, he runs past a little nine-year-old boy who's paralyzed, not much by injuries, but more by fear. And he um, finally gets catches up to the father. And the father had barricaded himself in Uh, one of the interior rooms and he pushes his way into the room and he finds uh, the father cowering on a bed in front of him. And the thought enters my friend's mind, which is no one is around right now. I could do whatever I want to this guy and no one would ever have to know. Just filled with rage. Today's father's day. Today's father's day. And almost in the next breath, he hears the word of the Lord speak to him. And he says, let it go. Do your duty and nothing more. And now that I have your attention, why don't you grab your Bibles and open them to Daniel chapter 1. We'll come back to that story at the end. Tricky, tricky. 
I'm glad you're here this morning. Um, it's good to be with you. Uh, we are in a series on Daniel, and we've been uh, in the series for the past two weeks, and we're going to continue it today. Um, what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through the first four chapters of Daniel, and we're going to look at Daniel and his friends in kind of a unique fashion. We're going to go through the stories that probably a lot of us have heard before, but we're going to kind of hone in on a unique factor of who Daniel is and what Daniel does in this book, which is exposing and showing a divergent duty. And we'll kind of unpack that as we go along. But in order to do that well, I think we need to talk a little history. If you don't like history, just hang with me. We'll get to some other cool stuff. Remember, the story's coming at the end of the sermon, so hang with me. But I think really to understand the the brevity, the weight of, not brevity, but the weight of this uh, book, we really need to understand what was going on at the time that it was written. So, in the first verse, we'll read it in a second, but we meet two characters in the first verse, and I think we have their names right here. Jehoiakim, who's the king of Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon. And both of these guys represent very real two geographical places, right? Um, So, a couple years before Nebuchadnezzar is on the scene, there's this guy by the name of, uh, oh wait, the year, right? 626 BC. 626 BC is when this guy... Ding. Nabopolosar. Everyone say Nabopolosar. Hey, that's pretty good. Good job. Nabopolosar was the king of Babylon, right? In uh, 626 BC. And he did a really kind of incredible thing. He overthrew the Assyrian Empire, which was a pretty big deal. Uh, the Assyrian Empire had ruled the ancient Near East for the last half a century, and they were just kind of this mighty force, this kind of wicked force in, in the land. And um, this, the king of Babylon rises up and defeats them, this kind of triumphant thing. And it's a huge deal because it changes the whole landscape of the ancient Near East. And um, so while he is kind of known as like the general who conquered the Assyrian Empire, he died shortly after that, um, that conquering. And his son, Nebuchadnezzar, came underneath him. And it was Nebuchadnezzar's job to go into all the provinces that were newly conquered and indoctrinate them on the the new ways of the Babylonian kingdom, right? And one of the things that he did in the year 586 BC is he went into a town called Jerusalem and he overthrew it and he devastated the province of Judah, which is where we find the king Jehoiakim. And then at the epicenter of this, so as this is all going on, the the temple has been destroyed, Jerusalem has been destroyed, we have the story of Daniel. Let me tell you why this is significant to the people of God. This is significant to the people of God because the destruction of Jerusalem had been prophesied over for a long time. So, kind of a quick history of the Bible. God creates the heavens and the earth, brings Adam and Eve to existence. Adam and Eve sin. They are taken out of God's protective presence, and then God sends them out with a promise. I'm going to, I'm going to fix this. We have a broken relationship right now, but I will fix it in your midst. And I will bring together a family, and I, that family will be my treasured possession. Then we meet this dude named Abraham. Abraham, God says to Abraham, you will be my people, and I will be your God, and you will be a blessing to all of the world. And then we meet another dude by the name of Moses. And God says to Moses, I'm going to help you put a structure together for how my family operates in my kingdom in this world. And then on and on and on. But what happens over and over and over again, although God is constantly trying to put back their relationship with his people, they keep getting distracted. They keep being disobedient. They keep missing the point over and over and over again. And God continues to say, like, if this continues, if this mode of, of living continues, I will banish you from your land. I will, I will rip you from your land and put you under a, a new authority. That's not mine. I, I, will, I will give you over to your oppressors. And that's what happens in 586 BC with Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is at the epicenter along with Daniel with this huge shift in the way that the people of God relate to who God is. And that's partly why the book of Daniel is so crucial, so important, so interesting. So, uh, what I want to do now is I, I want to read um, some of Daniel together to get a kind of better picture of this. So, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read to verse 7. 
So in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So everything that I just said is wrapped up in that first verse. They shortened it, but, you know. Okay, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, in the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Messiah, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now, what Nebuchadnezzar does here is super predictable for kings of the ancient Near East. When a king would kind of move into, when a king conquered a land, what they would do is they would go in and they would send an ambassador to gather up some, some young talent, right? Some good-looking young men to come to the, the new palace, the new kind of center of the kingdom and teach them. They, they would teach them new language. They would teach them the new mores, the new morals, the, the new lifestyle of this kingdom. They would give them new names. They would rip them entirely out of their context and put them into a brand new context and said, you will learn and live like this. And then what would happen is after three years, those students would come before the king and the king would quiz them. Do you actually know who we are? Are you really like the kind of people we want? And then those students would go back to their land and their job was to educate and kind of, if you will, brainwash their people, right? This was like a systematic, brilliant way to not to overcome a geographical place and then get them to live like you want them to live, right? So that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a part of that. They're the good-looking young men who are smart and skillful, and they were brought as captives, captives of war to their new home. You with me? Yep? Okay. But Daniel does something kind of out of the ordinary. So let's keep reading in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, uh, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Misael, Azariah. Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let, then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. Essentially what he's saying is, we're going to eat vegetables for, for these ten days. And if we don't match up to it at the end of it, you can just kill us. It's a win-win for you. Okay, verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Essentially, he made everyone vegetarians here. So 17, as, as these four youths as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. 
And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them in ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So, let's talk a little bit about this. Um, What Daniel and his friends do with Nebuchadnezzar was just radical. I mean, it kind of doesn't sound that way in the text, but it was just like unbelievable, huge deal. I can't believe you're doing that. Because essentially, think of it this way. A conquering king comes, lays down this new nation, brings captors of war into his palace. And one of those captors, and not only that, but gives them awesome food, right? Just lavishes them with great wine and great food. A lot of it probably meat. And Daniel comes and he's like, yeah, I'm not going to, we're not going to do any of that. Sorry, just not our thing. And the reason he does that, a lot of scholars believe, is because the meat that was given to their people was probably meat that was sacrificed to idols. And so Daniel, having known this, knowing that this food was dedicated to someone other than their God, he said, yeah, can't eat that. Sorry, we, we've, got, we've got our God, we've got our guy, and um, we're not going to eat this food unheard of. And you can hear it because the chief of the eunuchs is not really concerned about Daniel's life. He's like, what's happened to me if you do this? Like, he's going to kill me if, if you do this. And Daniel was like, great, I'll, I'll, I'll make sense of it for you. You could just kill us if it doesn't work out. How does that sound? And the eunuchs is like, okay, sure. It, it's a little strange, isn't it? That he acts this way as a captive in a new land. So the question is, how did he get away with it, right? That's, that's my question. In verse 9, I think there are two reasons. And the first is, I think, in verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. You see, even though Daniel was captive, he, he was captive to a new land, he wasn't acting like it, right? And the reason he wasn't acting like it is because God was doing something in their midst. He knew that God was not done doing things just because they were out of Jerusalem, Right? And God was doing something through Daniel, through his obedience, walking in tandem with him to bring about God's purposes in the world, even in a conquered world. So God gave favor. to If you're taking notes um, today, I put this in there for you. God continually confounds the power and authority of man. Over and over, this is a thing that we see, especially in the first four chapters of Daniel, over and over and over again. What you think is is big and mighty and strong, like the king of Babylon bringing young men into his temple courts, is actually, that doesn't work out. But under God's control, under God's command, something powerful happens over and over again. God is throwing the powers that be on their head. The second reason I think is, is more implicit in the text, and I kind of mentioned already, but if you're taking notes, this is, this is it. Daniel didn't act conquered because he wasn't. There is a difference between being conquered and living conquered. And Daniel knew that difference. Daniel knew that he was serving a God who was not going to be knocked off his throne just because Jerusalem was sacked. Right? He's not easily moved. And so Daniel lives into that in the midst of a king. His conquered king lives into that and proclaims over and over and over and over again, yeah, we're not going to do that because there's, there's actually one far greater. Constantly in the book of Daniel, he and his friends stand as a reminder to the powers that be, and I think also to the people of God, that there is one greater. There is one more powerful. There is a king on the throne that may be invisible to some, but is our total reality. So then in the following story, in chapter 2, we, we kind of touched on this last week, but I want to talk about it just a little bit further. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, right? And he calls all the wise men together in the land, and he said, hey, uh, I had this dream, and I want you to interpret it for me. They're like, great, tell us the dream. And he's like, uh, no, I want you to tell me the dream and the interpretation. To which the wise men very reasonably say, um, that's crazy. We, don't, we can't do that. And Nebuchadnezzar responds, okay, no problem. I'm just going to wipe all of you guys out. Or D- 
dismember you, right? If you were here last week, that joke makes sense. If you weren't here, I apologize. I'll explain it later. Um, so he just threatens them all. And Daniel gets wind of this, right? And, and then Daniel does something interesting. And we see it here in chapter 2, verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek the mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Two things I think are important here. The first is this. In the face of an impossible task, this, I mean, this was definition impossible. Daniel's first response is to what? Go to his dudes. Gather his, gather his family around. Gather his friends around and say, hey, I, I need you guys. Can't do this on my own. And I think this is very, really kind of culturally counterintuitive for us. We, we live in a very individualized culture. And there's some good to that, but there's also some harm in that. Because what we tend to do is think that we have to handle everything on our own. We have to do things on our own. We have to make our own way. And Daniel kind of disrupts that a little bit. When he's faced with something impossible, he runs to his friends. Guys, can we gather together? We need to pray and seek the mercy of heaven. I need you with me right now. I think there's some wisdom in that for us. And the second thing he does is, is seek the mercy and wisdom of heaven. It's important to note that in the, it's widely acknowledged that within Babylonian training, in the three years that Daniel and his friends were being trained in, ba- in Babylon, um, there would have been an interpreting dreams one-on-one class, right? They, they taught people how to look for signs, look for things within dreams and be able to find like this hidden meaning inside of it. So Daniel and his friends went through that training. And so you would think that Daniel's response would be to like fall back on that, right? This impossible task. Okay, I'm going to put a plan together. This is what I've been taught. This is how this works. And so this tree thing means this in this dream. So I'm going to make it make sense of it here and then present it to the king. But he doesn't do that. He says, hey guys, I know we've been trained, but let's seek the mercy of heaven first. Let's go there first. He does not fall back on his training. He falls back on the wisdom and mercy of God. And then of course, as the story goes on, God is gracious and gives Daniel the interpretation. And then this is what, this is his response. And I put this in in the top of your notes just because it like lifts my heart out of my chest. It's so good. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20, uh, reads like this. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells in him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Let me tell you what I would have done if this would have happened. This is just, I'm just being honest with you. If this would have happened to me and I got the interpretation, which no one else could do, totally impossible, I would have run straight to the king and be like, hey, don't worry. I figured it out. Me. On my own. Because no one else could have done, I mean, I would have taken 100% of the credit. Because I would have gotten 100% of the reward. And Daniel does not do that here. He again goes against the grain and he gets this revelation from God. And instead of running to the king, he runs to his knees before the actual king. And says, to you, God, you've given me wisdom. You're the one who sets up kings. I can't do it on my own. I needed you and you came through for me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So then upon hearing the dream and the interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar's response is just awesome. Chapter 2, verse 47, he says this, Truly, your God, is, your, your God is God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And while this, this acclaim is sweeping and beautiful and totally true, we see that it doesn't really stick for Nebuchadnezzar because the very next verse, in the very next chapter, we see him setting up this huge golden idol of himself that he is asking 
everyone to worship. And so then we go into that story, right? We go into the story of Nebuchadnezzar gathering all of his people, all of his wise men and some of, some of the others to come before this golden idol of himself. And when the trumpets sound, everyone is supposed to kneel and worship. And the trumpets sound and everyone kneels except for three little dudes from Judah in the back. And they're just kind of standing. And they get confronted like, hey, why, why are you not standing? Or why, why are you not kneeling? And they're like, um, it's not our deal. We're not going to do that. Sorry. And so they get brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's like, hey, why aren't you kneeling? You need to kneel. If you don't kneel, I'm going I'm to throw you in this furnace over here. By the way, two minutes ago, this furnace got so hot that it burned up five other dudes. I'm going to throw you in there. And this is their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O King Nebuchadnezzar, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And the mic drops. Once again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before the powers that be and say, no, we're not going to do that. Sorry. We, we've got our guy. We, we know someone who, who's far greater than you. And you know what? He can and will deliver us out of your hand. And, but you know what? Even if he doesn't, we'll never bow down to you. Not even once. Nebuchadnezzar's furious by this. Throws them into the furnace. And as, as you might already know, they throw three guys in there. And then Nebuchadnezzar's looking in. And like, hey, didn't we throw three guys in there? It's like, yeah. It's like, what's that other dude doing in there? He's shining as bright as the sun. Nebuchadnezzar's like, hey, get out of here. Come out of here, you guys. They come out not even smelling like fire. And Nebuchadnezzar just worships them and their God. And I want to just like pause for a moment and talk about a couple of things. The, the first is I want to talk a little bit about kings in the ancient Near East. They were kind of huge bummers to be around. Like they were just egocentric, mean. They killed a lot of people if they didn't like them. Like just the worst guy to bring to a party, you know, like always talking about himself, like making his small accomplishments seem way bigger than they actually are. Just like a bummer, right? And Nebuchadnezzar falls right in line with those guys. And they're also super insecure. And so what they're not going to do is like elevate somebody above themselves or make someone else or something else seem much greater than they are. And over and over again, the king, the conquering king of Babylon is falling on his knees in light of the actions of another guy. So the second thing I want to point out is Nebuchadnezzar gets a lot of flack, right? Because... He keeps praising God and then he keeps like setting up idols to himself. Like, dude, and then like throwing people in furnaces. Stop doing that. But here's the deal. The truth is, I mean, that's me. Like God will show up in my life in a powerful and unique way. And I will just worship him, you know, fall on my face before him, go out into crowds and, and just shout his name. And then the next day, I mean, I'm not throwing people into furnaces, but I'm not like perfect. I forget, I, I disobey, I hold back, I sin. The truth is, I'm, I'm Nebuchadnezzar. And I think the truth is, we are Nebuchadnezzar in many ways. That's not the point. That's just kind of a side thing. So, we'll keep going. So, the, the last thing I want to talk about is, is Nebuchadnezzar's final humiliation in chapter 4. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. This dream really freaks him out. It's, it's very strange. And so he gathers again all of his wise men, and he, he explains it to them, and they just don't get it. And so he brings Daniel in. And this is what he says of Daniel. Daniel, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. 
So he's like, oh, thank goodness, Daniel's here. He will be able to make sense of this terrifying dream. And I'm not going to go into the dream too much, but I, I will say this. The dream consists of, of this big, massive tree that has a lot of room for different birds and, and people, not people, but like animals to thrive in. And then the Most High comes and chops the tree down and it falls into oblivion and it is really destroyed. And Daniel, upon hearing this, kind of gets white in the face. He gets really nervous. And um, his response to King Nebuchadnezzar is, King Nebuchadnezzar, I hope that this dream is about anybody else but you. Because it's, there's no good in it. And um, he goes on to say, uh, this is, that, that tree is you. And if you don't amend your ways and do righteousness in your kingdom and, and kind of kill your pride, that tree will be you. You, you're the one who has a massive kingdom where people can thrive in. But if you think that you did it on your own, it's not good. And then we read this in verse 28, chapter 4. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, so 12 months after Daniel had kind of talked to him, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, by the way, no one asked him a question. Just again, the guy you don't want to bring to the party, just answering questions that no one asked. Anyways, <clears throat> answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Which is just a Hebraic way of saying like a long, 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 long time is going to pass over you. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So he like turns into this wolverine thing guy. So in dramatic fashion, God puts Nebuchadnezzar in his place. He, he says, listen, I don't have room for your pride in this. I don't have room for you to keep thinking that you did this. I don't have room for you to keep thinking, keep getting distracted by your own glory. That's not going to work here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to rip you from your comfort. I'm going to take you from your land and put you into an, a foreign place. A place that you don't know much about. And there you will stay for a long, long time until you realize who sets up kings and who makes kingdoms. And doesn't that sound just a little bit familiar? Isn't that what God did with Israel? Over time, they, they kept being disobedient. They, they kept setting up their own ways, getting distracted by different idols and different kingdoms, different ways of life. And so God finally had said, I'm going to take you out of your land and put you to a foreign land until you recognize who I am. And now the king who was used to destroy the temple is experiencing the same fate. Isn't that interesting? So what what does this have to do with us today in this place, in, in this culture, in this time in life? Well, there are three points that I want to talk about um, as we kind of come to a close here. And I want to think about them first from the perspective of the exiled people of Israel. And then I want to think about them through our perspective. So the first point is this. God is king. God is king. The reason the book of Daniel was written was to proclaim this loud and clear. that God is king. He is the most high. There are some who have authority who are in high places. God is higher than they are. Right? And think about this from the perspective of an exiled people. Your land, your government, your temple, your whole way of life is ruined and destroyed. And then you hear a story of a dude living in the courts of, of the conquering king, refusing to act like his God had been thrown off the throne. What would that do to your faith? Probably build it up a little bit. 
probably say to you, probably speak to you and say, you know what? There's something to this. That our God is still king. Even though he, we don't have a temple anymore, our God is still on the move a little bit here because, because of Daniel, because of what God is doing through Daniel in the temple courts right now. And what, is that, what does that communicate to us? Well, I think it's, I think it's safe to say um, that, that we are living in a time of political turmoil, um, political stress. Um, and what I want to say to that today is, is, friends, God is king. Today, just as much today as he was in the time of Daniel. And, and the story of Daniel stands as a clarion call to the people of God saying, don't you forget who's really in charge. Not even for a moment. Regardless of what happens in November, regardless of what happens tomorrow in your own life, in the life of your family, in the life of this country, God is still king. The one who sets up kingdoms. The one who has no darkness in him, but holds within himself light. God is king. Point number two. And I apologize. This is probably the longest bullet point thing of all time in our church. So I, I, I just didn't know how to shorten it. So, sorry, my bad. Anyways, actions that seem weak and small are able to confound social and cultural powers when empowered by the Spirit of God through humility. So let me explain. It's really long. Sorry. Um, when Daniel was confounded with a mystery that he couldn't do anything about that, that would result in his death and the death of his friends and the death of the rest of the guys who have been conquered, uh, he runs to his friends and they run to prayer. Think about what they were up against. They were up against an entire empire. A king who, with the, the flick of his wrist, could have their head like that. And his response is not to, like, put a mutiny together. His response is not to, like, you know, create this militant force that, that overthrows the king and, like, takes power of the kingdom. His strategy is to go somewhere quiet with close friends and call upon the mercies of heaven call upon the mercies of God. And over and over again, in different places here and there, we see God telling his people, listen, those small actions result into some very big things. Because in that scenario, God gave them the word. And that word not only saved their lives, but the lives of all of the wise men and the enchanters and the magicians. Probably people who weren't even following God. So I, I, I want to say, say this to thinking of it from the perspective of an exiled people. These, these people, I can imagine, felt helpless. Their country was taken from them. Their language was taken from them. Their names were taken from them. It would be easy, I think, to be like, what are we going to do? Nothing. There's nothing at all we can do. And again, the story, they hear this story of a dude named Daniel refusing to live like that. Refusing to live into the notion that just because things aren't the way that they should be, that God is not active. That God is dead somehow. And so though prayer, from our, from our perspective, though prayer may sometimes feel like a small thing. I mean, I've heard people say, there's nothing left to do but pray. I guess we could just, we'll just have to pray. I'm not saying that that saying is wrong or bad. What I'm saying is, if, if your thought process is, there's nothing we could do, so I guess we'll just kind of throw up some words to God. You're missing the point. Because prayer it is the action that connects our hearts to the to living life and blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Redeemer of all things, the thing, the guy who's making things right in the world. Prayer is what connects us to him. And, and it seems small at times. Because there's another story in Daniel where, where he is being uh, where he's being told to, to pray to, to the king, and he's like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna go quietly into my room and pray to my God. And he wasn't making a big fuss about it. But then he gets thrown into a lion's den and God protects him and brings him out of it. 
And I wonder if that same thing would happen if Daniel didn't have the obedience, the, the faithfulness to get in, on his knees and be content with something small that actually made a huge, huge difference. Number three. This one's a little bit shorter, so it's good. Though living in exile, God is not dormant. Through the perspective of a conquered people, I can't imagine how life-giving this would have been to hear. They have sinned over and over again. Their fathers have sinned. Their fathers' fathers had sinned against God. And finally, they were ripped out of their home. And it would have been easy to think, God has given up on us for sure this time. We're done. But then they hear these stories of a guy who refuses to act like the God of their fathers and their fathers' fathers have been knocked off the throne, refusing to act. That's just like, just because we're in exile means that God is not is done with us. Because friends, he's not. You know how I know? Because of Daniel. Because of what God is doing in Daniel. And then from our perspective, I don't have to tell you that this week has been incredibly difficult. I mean, guys, I live near Falcon Heights, right? I mean, this is our, this is our neighborhood. The truth is, even though Jesus has come and he has set up his kingdom and he is, ma- he is making all things new, there's a part, a very real part, that we are still in exile from God. We are still separated from the perfection of the Garden of Eden. But my encouragement to you is that God is not dormant. He is not done yet. It does not matter how many mornings we wake up to another atrocity, to another brokenness, another evidence that things are not made right yet. God is not done working. God is not done moving in our midst. And that, I think, is cause for hope. That, I think, is cause for celebration. That is why we gather together like this to be encouraged by God's word and to go out and live like Daniel, live a divergent duty to the God of gods, the God who sets up kings and kingdoms. Though in exile, God is not dormant. Back to the story of my friend. He's standing in in front of this man and he hears the word of the Lord come to him and it says, let it go. Do your duty and nothing more. That's what he does. He, he picks up the, the father. He, he puts him in cuffs. He, he walks him out. Um, he calls for backup. He, he gets rid of, um, puts the guy in a cruiser. And he goes and hangs out with the kids for like two hours. And he just tells them fishing stories. Some of them true. Most of them really not true, right? But he's just talking, right? Um, and so un, until child services could come. And then um, fast forward 15 years. At this point, my friend and his wife are now missionaries in Northern Africa. And um, they are living in a country that is 98% Muslim. And a large um, grouping of of that 98% are militant Muslims. And they go there to to bring the gospel, to to bring light into darkness. And um, my friend and his wife, and then there were six other couples that came with them. And uh, my friend had a job at a university where he was able to teach a world religions class. And um, he kind of used that class as a platform to talk about Jesus, right? Because you can't talk about world religion without talking about Jesus. And so one of, one of the days, after two years of being there, um, one of the students in the room stands up unprovoked as he's talking about Jesus. And the student says to him, uh, I, I, think I, I think I know what you're saying. And my friend was kind of like, what? What am I saying? It's like, well, I think you're saying that, um, that God loves us, that God has sent his son Jesus to, to die for us, um, and that all we have to do is accept God's love for us and then walk into it uh, to, to live a life obedient to him. And, and at this point, my friend's eyes are just welling up with tears because after two years of nothing, no fruit whatsoever, a student is standing up in this moment talking about Jesus in front of the entire classroom. And my friend is like, that's... That's right. That's true. And the, the student says, I know what I have to do now. And he gets out of his seat and comes to the center aisle and walks up to my friend and spits in his face. 
and says, your God of love is a lie and walked out. And my friend was just heartbroken, just utterly broken. So he goes home and months go by and they're there and they're just every day asking God, God, why are we here? What, what difference are we making? This is so hard, too hard. At this point, all of the other team members, all the other couples have left to go home and it's just him and his wife and he's just distraught. And it's late one night. His wife and him are in bed, they're asleep and there comes a knock at the door. He goes uh, to the door and opens it and it's the student standing there. His first response is to be kind of nervous. Um, and the student begins to talk and he says, hi, um, I got a scholarship in a, at a school in Spain to study engineering, but I don't have enough money for the plane ticket. And my friend was like, you are not about to ask me for money right now. And that's what he does. He asks him for money. And he is ready to just like lay into this dude. And he hears the, the word of the Lord come to him and say, let it go. Do your duty and nothing more. And so that's what he does. He, um, he obeys the Lord and him and his wife uh, give him the money, raise the money, give him the money to, for his plane trip. And they're like, not only that, but we're going to like, we'll take you to the airport. Um, and so my friend is like, this is the moment, right? This is the moment where we have like a teary come to Jesus moment. And on the ride to the airport, he's going to accept Jesus and we're going to embrace. And he's going to like go off into the sunset. And I'm going to like raise my hands and sing hallelujah and send him on his way. This new missionary to Spain. And so he's talking to him in the car and it's just nothing. Just a wall between him and this guy. And, and they get to the airport and the guy gets out of the car, grabs his bags and just walks in and leaves. Just takes the money and runs. And my friend is like, are you kidding me? This is the worst. And so he goes into the airport and he gets a cup of coffee and he's just like, just kind of drinking his sorrows in his cup of coffee and asking God, like, God, I'm going to go home. Seriously, this is enough. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. This is hurtful. It hurt, harms me and my family. We're done. Like, this is just mean. You're just being mean now. And then out of the corner of his eye, he sees someone, like, emphatically pointing at him. And an airport in Northern Africa is not really the place you want to see someone, like, emphatically pointing at you. Right? <laughs> And so he's a little uncomfortable, like he's a little on edge, but he just kind of keeps drinking his coffee, drinking his coffee and, you know, just this person. So he, he's to the point now where he's totally uncomfortable, finishes his coffee, gets up to leave. And this person comes running over to him and stands in front of him and says, excuse me, sir, um, were you a police officer in Washington, D.C. around 15 years ago? And the reason this person was so emphatically pointing at him was because he rescued her and her two brothers from an apartment building. And he said, yeah, I, I was. Um, what are you doing here? And she said, well, um, me and my brother, the, the nine-year-old brother, um, who was nine-year-old, is now with me. Um, we are missionaries. Uh, we're leading a team to come and preach the gospel to militant Muslims. And my friend is just like, barely able to contain himself at this point and just says, I, that's what I'm doing. It's really hard. It's incredibly difficult, but I'm doing that here too. And the reason I tell you that story is, is to put an exclamation point at the end of, of this statement. Though in exile, God is not dormant. The things are not right yet, friends. God is not done doing things in our midst. And so we look to stories like Daniel to remind ourselves. We look to images like Daniel. And, and more importantly, we look to images and stories like the one of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who came to earth. And then Paul later wrote, because of the love of Jesus through pestilence and famine and destruction and, and death even, we are more than conquerors. We don't live conquered. We overcome conquering because of the love of Jesus Christ in us. So friends, though in exile... 
God is not dormant. My encouragement to you today is this. Don't don't overlook the small things. Don't overlook gathering together. Don't overlook praying. Don't overlook spending time in, in the word. For out of that, God can do some miraculous things. And two, fill your memory, especially with weeks like this. Fill your memory with stories of Daniel. With stories of God's conquering might and power. Of God's goodness against evil. And so what I'd like to do now, in light of all of everything that has happened in our country and in this world, and everything that I've just preached about this morning, I'd like to sing one last song. It's really short. It's called the doxology. And basically all it does is praise God. It glorifies him. It says, you know what? You are king and we're going to sing about it. And the whole world should sing about it because you're so good. And and so if you would indulge me one last time, I would encourage you to stand and sing this song with me. And afterwards I'm going to pray and, and know that there are people in the back. If you have any prayer requests who would love to pray with you, today and, and, and carry your burdens with you as Jesus does for us. But for now, let's sing, let's sing this song victoriously, not as a people conquered, but as a people living in victory. <clears throat> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Father, we call down heaven to earth. We, God, I pray faith in, into the lives that are in this room, that we would live a divergent duty unto Jesus. And God, help with this nation, help with this world, make a difference, make a way out of it. But God, may we be the way, may, be, may we be the ones who point to the way and say, Jesus is that way out. Jesus is that victorious conqueror that makes us more than conquerors in this world. God, may we be encouraged and enlightened and inspired by the story of Daniel, reminding ourselves that though in exile, God is not dormant, that God is not dead, but he is on the move. And may we, may we gather together in small groups and pray fervently. May we gather together in large groups and pray fervently that your kingdom would come. Lord, we trust you and we love you. In Christ's holy name. Amen. Thank you. Have a good week.